Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. All right, welcome to, welcome to The Nose, the weekly cultural roundtable of the Colin McEnroe Show. Um, we're going to begin the show today... Well, I mean, I'll, let me tell you what we're going to do later in the show, and then I'll try to uh, uh, set up the beginning of the show. Uh, towards the end of the show, we're going to talk about two items that we feel are kind of linked. One of them is a very long article um, by a researcher alleging that smartphones have substantially changed and maybe even sapped the morale of the young generation that grew up with them. Um, we're going to connect this, believe it or not, with um, a plea from uh, probably Connecticut's most uh, interesting and well-stocked video store, Best Video in Hamden, where their supply of 30,000 titles hasn't been enough to sort of keep them going, nor have some of their innovative changes. Um, they're still having problems. They owe money to vendors. They're asking the public to help them out. So, I mean, we're going to use that as a jumping off place to talk about that kind of store and what that kind of store does and whether, in fact, it has been and we know that it's being driven out by streaming and digital culture and stuff like that, all those things coming over kids' uh, smartphones. But do, does that digital culture really do the thing that these very well-curated experiences used to do? Uh, but we're going to begin, we have to begin, I th- we all agreed, somehow or other, w- with um, some aspect of this incredibly turbulent week we've been through. I feel like I've said those words before on the nose, too. It's like, <laughs> well, we have to, it's a turbulent week. I mean, they're, geez, they all, all are. One of the things that I was thinking about this morning was the day uh, very, very early this year, or it might have even been towards the end of last year, when Vice President Mike Pence um, attended the production of Hamilton. Uh, And at the end, the cast, uh, in an unusual move, kind of gathered on stage and addressed him from the stage. And one of the things they said was, we are the diverse America who are alarmed and anxious that your new administration will not protect us, our planet, our children, our parents, or defend us and uphold our inalienable rights, sir. But we truly hope this show has inspired you to uphold our American values. You know, whatever they were worrying about that day, I bet you they didn't picture the past weekend that we've just been through. I mean, as as deep and dark and profound as their concerns were, uh, and as as immersed in history as the cast of that show and the creators of that show are, I'm not sure they could have expected that there would be what happened in Charlottesville and that the president of the United States would find it difficult to, to really take a stand about this or to take the, take the appropriate stand anyway. I mean that worry was on their mind but I, I wonder if they, they could have crystallized it like this. I wonder uh, – anyway, that's a little bit about what we're going to be talking about and I, I, I think I want to begin also especially by talking about monuments because this is how this part of the conversation got going. Um, and um, our president has even suggested that there are, are, are fine people as opposed to really bad people, as opposed to like people carrying Nazi flags. There are fine people uh, who could have uh, problems with the removal of monuments. So um, – and I, there's been a wave of this even since Charlottesville. Monuments are being spirited out in the middle of the night in places like Baltimore. Uh, Nancy Pelosi is pointing out all the Confederate statues that are 
in the U.S. Capitol and saying that they should go. Uh, even the Boston Red Sox are suggesting that Yawkey Way, the little road that runs right by their stadium, needs to have its name changed. We could explain why that is. It's it's all over the place. So I don't know. Irene, oh, I haven't even introduced the panel yet. What's wrong with me? Uh, Tanisha Dugan is producing associate at Theater Works. Irene Vapoulos teaches writing at Trinity College. Tracy Wu Fastenberg is director of development at Coven, Covenant Preparatory School, uh, and. Okay, now I can say, Irene, (laughs) one of the questions that I have is, are we getting anywhere with all this stuff? In other words, you know, as we do things like remove statues of Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson as a way of trying to wrestle uh, with some of the dark aspects of our past and avoid celebrating or appearing to celebrate things uh, that should never be celebrated, are, are we making any progress as we try to do the right thing? Um, yeah, I think we are. And I think that, you know, the, you said that the Hamilton cast couldn't have imagined this week. Mm-hmm. And I sort of feel like people were imagining that as like the worst case horror scenario. And so in no, you don't think so? <laughs> you got two oh, no. heads shaking here. I'm sorry. <laughs> uh, I guess the first thing I, I should say is that in the same way that I was not surprised that Donald Trump was president after Election Day, I absolutely foresaw this. And I think the cast of Hamilton did as well. And uh, I think they were trying to be gracious in uh, a very uh, poignant and public attempt to say those things without saying you have unleashed a id in people that they've been wanting to express publicly for a long time Um, and be vigilant and be in front of it. Um, that cast knew that this was here. I know this is here. I'm no longer surprised when someone says they walked down the street and were called the Mm N-word because we're on the radio. I won't say the word. And I would also say that I think one of the things that we should point out is that mainly people of color and mainly people, folks from marginalized groups are the ones that we're saying, Y'all, this is what could happen. This is what could happen. Here are the scenarios that are coming down the pipeline if this continues. And we were told that we were being overreacting, that we were overreacting, that we're being alarmist, all of those things. And I think I'd like to think that had more folks paid a little more attention to it, took a little more action, maybe it wouldn't have been the way it is, but I, I doubt it. I hate to say that I doubt it because I don't think that there were enough people who were raising the alarm and the folks that were were being poo-pooed. You know, speaking of uh, turbulent weeks, by the way, I should acknowledge that as we're having this conversation uh, early in the afternoon on Friday, uh, the news is breaking in lots of different forms. Because we do live in multiverses, somehow or other Steve Bannon is no longer part of the Trump administration. Everybody's saying that, but with different verbs and tenses, uh, as Jonathan McNichols pointing out, either he's leaving or he got fired. He might have resigned two weeks ago and nobody knew that. He's been removed, as is so often the case here. Very difficult to uh, pin things down. Well, I want to get just to this part, too, that that is about uh, the symbolic nature of of life in America. I'll just say what I think, and then people can uh, adamantly disagree with me. Um, <laughs> I, I I mean, first of all, I think it's fine. I am I'm, I'm down with removing statues of Robert E. Lee or Stonewall Jackson. I don't think somebody like Alexander Stevens should be up in the uh, in, in the halls of the U.S. Capitol. Um, but I also don't think it's going to do any good. Um, I actually don't think it accomplishes very much. I think it's treating the symptom rather than the disease. I mean, why do people 
people want to do? Why, why do people want to have these statues? Why are people willing to show up there? Well, some people are willing to show up because they really are just they're Nazis and white supremacists, and you know, and and they're. And they feel very emboldened in the current climate where there's a president who will make some room in the tent for them. But I think there's other people and it's one of the – it's the fundamental you know, idenic fall of America. Half the country – maybe not half the country. The people who live in the south still essentially believe that the Civil War was about state rights. And they're taught that from the time they go to elementary school, through high school and into college. They are taught that they are – that this was not a war about slavery. Um, it, and when it emphatically was, if you look at the rhetoric of the, the, the founders of the Confederacy going into this in the 1850s, you know, all, running all the way up to 1861, it's absolutely clear that's what this war is about. That's what this war is going to be about. But I mean, I, I think until you fix that, until we have truth and reconciliation here in this country, we're going to move statues until the cows come home. I don't but, think it's going to make any I'll difference. I'll give you the first point that, okay. yes, I think the uh, pulling them down by themselves probably won't doing, do anything. But that action is an activator. Mm -hmm. And you need that action to begin to have a conversation. The action is violent. And it's a violent conversation. Mm -hmm. And so you need that action, which is sort of confined to an inanimate object, to move us into these conversations that are dark. I mean, let's be honest. We were trying to find every, every way, and I'll say the royal we, um, because I was silent. <laughs> but um, we were trying to find any way but the obvious way to have a conversation about this today. Mm -hmm. um, we were avoiding it. Um, and well, I think there's a lot of reasons for that. But an action like pulling down a statue moves people to have conversations they wouldn't normally want to have. Well, I mean, in fairness, the reason we were looking for uh, wondering how to do this is that this isn't a news roundtable. I, when I, in the Trump era, I say this every week, basically. The panels. <laughs> this isn't a news roundtable. We have news roundtables here at the station. We really do try to have this show focus on culture. But yeah, and it's one of the reasons I'm talking right now about statues mm -hmm. as opposed to Steve Bannon. Steve Bannon isn't really a topic for the show. But, but statues memorialization, how we process history, how we understand history, how we show history in a show like Hamilton. All of that is culture and it all feeds into what we're talking and about. And you that's were saying why about I think it really makes a difference to take the statues down. I mean, not it's not as though we're just going to take the statues down and nothing else is going to change, you know. But if we're taking the statues down, then all those people that think, oh, the Civil War was about states' rights, or at least some number of those people might say, wait a minute, why are they taking the statues down? What's going on? I mean, that's maybe an, an overly optimistic perspective, but I really do have that perspective, you know, I, that it's going to start, it starts the conversation and it's crucial. I mean, because if you leave the statues there, you're still perpetuating something that is horrible to perpetuate. So, Right. Their very existence is a romanticization. It's a glorification of what happened. And so when you memorialize something in that way, you know, you look at a statue like, oh, something great must have happened for, for them to commission an artist to create this and for it to stand in a public space. And they do have that magnificence. Right. Like the and that they, they lord over you. That. They're, yeah. you know, they're high up. And so just that sort of feeling perpetuates that idea of it was OK. You know, it's something to be celebrated, to be memorialized. And so I think it's a cyclical thing. You know, little kids will look up to it and be like, OK, so this reinforces what I've been taught in school. And so their very existence sort of does that. You take them down. You break that cycle in certain ways. But I absolutely agree with Colin that, yeah, it's it, it may 
not be effective, and it's certainly not going to be effective on its own. I think it's not effective if we don't interrogate ourselves about this too. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I keep yeah. one of the one of the things that one of the weird moments of the many weird moments of 2016. Was, I was interviewing Jane Sanders, wife of Bernie Sanders. I asked her her favorite movie. She said, "Gone with the Wind." Yeah. <laughs> Gone with the Wind is, yeah. like, is a movie which mm-hmm. <laughs> which it's a Valentine to the slaveholding South. Talk about you know a bizarre sugar coated alternative narrative about slavery. I mean. And this is really a pretty evil cultural product. So it seems to me that if you can you can tear down all these Robert E. Lee statues, I'm fine with it too. By I don't object to it. But if the wife of the most liberal candidate in the dem- in the in the presidential race thinks Gone with the Wind is an acceptable movie, it's romantic. You know? I mean, I think I've said this on this show before. You know, when I was eight, I wanted to be Scarlett O'Hara, right. and my mom had to redirect that want <laughs> yeah. to Southern Belle, and even she wanted to redirect that yeah. because sure. it is so romantic. And the idols are that are idols. I mean, how radical would it be if standing beside these statues are indigenous people are immigrants Mm -hmm. are lording over us in the same way because that's the dichotomy and duality of our country. Mm. So yes, I, I, you know, let's not, let's, let's have a conversation about taking them down or not, but let's also talk about who our idols are in our country and how we determine what is important. Those are our values. That's why the statues are important because they speak to some level of our value system, which we say that that fight is central to who we are. And the more it's in the conversation, the better, you know, like because otherwise, you know, the fact that it didn't occur to Jane Sanders that that there was something problematic about that is amazing, but it, it shows what kind of circles she's been living in. You know, and yet that I doubt she, she doesn't, doesn't have see the problems. Do you? Right? I, do you? I do. I do. I think people are complex and 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 have a lot of duality. And I think we get really um, caught up in conversations where we can place an idea on a person. It's very easy to say Mrs. Sanders is somewhere blocked in her mind about <laughs> whether or not Gone with the Wind is... Uh, a socially and culturally sound piece of filmmaking, I would suspect she on some level understands that it is it is uh, dangerous to us. But it it is romantic. Yeah, but to say that's your favorite movie, I mean, even that's just like... What are you going to say? <laughs> no, I was actually going to pretty much echo what Tanisha was saying, that, you know, it. I think that in certain ways she can appreciate it as an escapist moment or mm. or whatever it is but still maybe in a conversation around a dinner table, be able to articulate the issues with it also. I, I think that there, but, there can be both. But doesn't it make but, sense for us to be as hard on this, ourselves about the stuff that we like as oh, yes. we are hard on somebody in Virginia who likes a statue that we find offensive? I think we all have to Definitely. look within ourselves. You know, it, it's sort of that the adage that has become very popular, all your faves are problematic. Everything that you love, all your favorite celebrities, all your favorite products— there's probably some aspect of it that's problematic. And so you have to look at that and and really analyze um, and look at yourself. And I, I mean, let's take the challenge, right? I don't know how many of us would actually want to truly live that life, but take the challenge of not, of, of only um, doing the things that are morally sound, of only doing the things that are wholly right. Uh, that's a that's a tall order for most people. That's a very tall. But I mean, or mm-hmm. even an easier challenge, which would be, I like Gone with the Wind. Why do I like it? 
what is in right. there? What I think, am I, I not think seeing? it starts there. You know, sure, and that's what the nose there. is for. Um, <laughs> I mean, one of the things that I've been thinking about this uh, last a week ago, last night, I was at this lovely Knox uh, Garden event um, uh, or Knox Foundation event, and uh, walking around was this guy who's become a little bit of a visible fixture in Hartford over the last two or three months. His name is Bert Barnett. He's a national park ranger. He's got the whole Smokey the Bear hat thing and all that, you know, and he's a national park ranger uh, assigned to Coltsville or Colt Gateway or whatever you want to call this new, you know, national monument. Well, I consider to be Sam Colt to be a very problematic figure. You know, if this is going to be a celebration of the manufacturing past of Connecticut and not be interrogated in some other way, I mean, Sam, Sam Colt's Six Gun was really marketed, among other places, to slaveholders because you could put down a six slave revolt much more easily if you could fire six shots. Um, his last shipment of arms to the south went out three days after Fort Sumter. He wasn't a racist or a slavery uh, adherent. Marks. Yeah, he was just somebody who didn't see it as a moral question at all and was would make money from any place that he could, um, and, which I think if you don't see it as a moral question, yeah, sort of you are a racist. Then. <laughs> but like, are we going to have that conversation or are we just going to be really happy that the National Park Service is in Hartford? It's a valid question. Yeah. Well, that's why we have college, you know? <laughs> I mean, supposedly as a college teacher, I feel like that's my job is to get people to question themselves in that way. Mm-hmm. And... Um, so let's hear it for college. And yet I heard this school. strange anecdote from a, a friend whose child is, is trying to find colleges. And one of the first questions they, her guidance counselor asked her was, you know, where do you fall politically on the spectrum? Because I want to help you find a school that aligns to that. And I think to myself, well, then that's not what college is for. Because mm-hmm. I thought the purpose <laughs> was to open your minds to things you haven't already, right. you know, been taught or put in your environment. Let me f- well, help you find good, the best that's, that's, echo chamber. <laughs> that's an amazing question, you know, that for a guidance counselor to ask. And I mean, there's a lot of forces that don't want colleges to get people to really question things, you know, and I, or I, schools in general. I think another question that we have to wrestle with, and it's harder, I think, that we make it, is how how do we judge people? I mean, okay, take Robert E. Lee, talk, take Stonewall Jackson. There's going to be one camp that's going to say, Kind of the way you might say it about Sam Colt, too. Well, they were like generals. They were general guys. They were military guys. That's where they were living, so they were going to be military guys for that side. It doesn't necessarily mean that they are real obvious proponents or avatars of this one particular discredited and unbelievably uh, evil American institution. And then there's this other side that's going to say, no, if you have any kind of moral compass at all, you can't participate uh, in something like that. Um, But I mean, we're going to have to go, I mean, case by case through these things, I think. And I mean, with Sam Colt, it's the same thing. I regard him as a morally empty and therefore repugnant human being. And I'm very uncomfortable celebrating him. But like, you know, we have to have those conversations. It's not going to be good enough for me to sit there and be, you know, and we also, comfortable about what I think. Well, right. And it's also, you know, the whole idea of con- condemning other people who don't think the same way we are, I think, is also part of the part of the conversation, you know, because you could say, all right, I think he's repugnant and therefore everyone should think he's republic- repugnant. And on the other side, the person would say the opposite, you know, mm-hmm. but the com- that's why I think the conversation is in its is so important because we have to talk about why do you think he's repugnant? Can you explain it? Can we have a conversation? Can we look into? Can we get somebody who feels differently to start questioning them themselves too? You know, it, we like nuance is really important. We can't just condemn some people and celebrate others. Period. Right. 
Well, so that that and that can lead us to. I mean, for example, and I know you guys aren't necessarily like sports people, but this is a pretty easy one to talk about anyway. So the Red Sox suddenly yesterday, their owner, in the midst of this incredible conversation, we're already having. Their owner said, "You know, I would like to get." The name of Yaki Way changed because Tom Yaki was the owner of the Red Sox during the period of time where they just didn't do anything about the segregation of American baseball. Um, as a Red Sox fan, this is something that I know and have, like, mm-hmm. you know, have trouble living with that, that the Red Sox finally added a black player three years after Jackie Robinson retired. <laughs> Uh, that's how long it took uh, for them to do this. Now, Boston I don't. Is, uh, yeah, Boston, historically a racist city. Yeah. Well, yes, yeah. yes. I mean, it had all those Boston Brahmins who helped lead the abolition movement, and but then it's also full of these horrible racists who, to this day, you know, yell stuff at black players and and all mm-hmm. this kind of stuff. But then you look at a guy like Yaki. I'm not even sure that I. I my understanding of Tom Yaki has always been. That he was like this kind of soft, empty kind of guy who was surrounded by coaches and general managers who were racist and didn't think blacks could handle the pressure of Major League Baseball. And he just sort of went, OK. <laughs> you know? uh, I mean, I've never n- known Tom Yaki to be associated with a particular racist statement that he's made or anything like that. So so now I, I have to sit there and go, well, God, so do we scrub this guy too? You know, I mean, I'm OK changing the name of the street. I don't have any attachment to it. But once again, I think we have to talk those things through, right? But it bothers you because because you feel like he wasn't that bad, or or I'm just trying to figure out what's the what, what are the crimes and what are the punishments, you know? Um, and punishment is probably the wrong word. What's the right way of fixing stuff? Like I I, I also feel like hmm? <laughs> reparations. reparations. Yeah, well, right. Yeah, we, we get in there too. Absolutely. Um, I I almost feel like I'd rather see the Red Sox put up a sign somewhere that says. We're really sorry that we were the last, you know, baseball team to integrate. We we it's an article of shame for us rather mm-hmm. than just take the name of some guy's name off a street where people sell souvenirs. I think they do both. Exactly. Yeah. I think you know, it, like you said, it's not punishment, but instead we're revering somebody who was essentially flaccid when he should have been a, a leader. You know, and it's not like he was necessarily being a leader. He actually, you know, when other teams were integrating and he was just letting it not happen. You know, it, it's just I don't think that should be celebrated. Maybe he did other great things, but at the same time, you can say, hey, he was one of our owners, you know, mm-hmm. rather than saying we're going to name this place after him and his name will be seared in everyone's memory as somebody great. But I think that at the same time, you have to have that educational piece. Hey, this is part of our history. We recognize it. We own it. We apologize for it. Not even really clear he did other great things. In fact, as you might guess, if you don't have any black baseball players on your team and everybody else is recruiting from people of all colors, the other teams get a lot better. <laughs> You're narrowing your pool, sure. You don't ever win the World Series I because you've got this stupid policy. take the name down, right? <laughs> I also feel like I, I want to respond to the idea of a of, of flaccid way in which you are an activist. Mm-hmm. And I would say that people might say that same thing about me, right? That I am not going to the streets. I am not marching. I'm not taking my two kids and coming to the cap, the state capital. Uh, and so I take umbrage with the idea that there is a way in which you rage against the machine. Well, he did nothing. That's my point, is that he did... And a lot of people do nothing. Not to say that that is right. But, but he but had the chance is... to do something, though. In his yeah. position of mm-hmm. power, I think that's mm-hmm. he could have done something. It's, it's, it's yes, a, that's... Yeah. Yes. You know, so. yes. It's not as though that you, you have power, which you are failing to use or are misusing. So then, right. Tanisha, you might say I mean, that I do taking... Have power. taking <laughs> that, and I do use it. Taking the, name, taking the name down is not necessarily a good idea. 
Then. I actually think taking the name down and saying we are ashamed. Mm. I'm not so interested in the apology, mm. but the, the recognition <laughs> of the shame, shame is, is actually very sorrow. important. To yeah. me. But I, I question the, you know, I am in a position of power. I do hire people of color. That could be perceived as a flaccid way in which to rage against the machine. That's why I was saying to you, there are ideas of how in which a person needs to right. and react I, in space. I would say that for each person, you have to figure out what is going to work for you, what's going to be as effective in your role in our society. Mm-hmm. I also do not go take my daughter down to March because there are various reasons, you know, and, and I feel like there are other ways that I can be active. You know, and frankly, I use a lot of words. <laughs> <laughs> I use a lot of words. But I think it's important to to recognize and remember the myths that perpetuate with all of the actions that people do in their mm-hmm. real everyday lives. Um, and it, and it's, to me, it sort of brings full circle back to the idea of a statue. It's, you know, there's a myth of a person that exists beyond the person that they actually were in life every day. And there was highs and lows and good and bad and dark and light. Um, and, and we sometimes focus on on the major story. Um, but the word flaccid is it kind of, you know, it, it, I don't know. The, it, it has such negative connotations. Like, so in a way, if you think a flaccid activist, no. How about an indirect activist? Or, a, sure. You know, I would like to say that I'm going to get at least one email pointing out that the word is pronounced flaccid. And the only reason I know this is having grown up with Bob Steele, who used to, <laughs> every really? day he would do a word <laughs> of the day. I yeah. think flaccid does, doesn't do the right justice to actually what <laughs> it is. Flaccid. <laughs> yes, yeah. exactly. Yeah, it just sounds like sounds it. Sounds like so. what it is. But flaccid then, gives it still a <laughs> semblance of hope. But I, I think the, the other part, just to, since Denisha brought it back to statues, I think the other thing we have to make part of our conversation, and I, I'm hearing it a bit these days, is that, you know, these statues and, and things like the name of Calhoun College being splashed mm-hmm. onto a college mm-hmm. at Yale, those things all happened between about 1900 and 1930, right? That, they didn't happen in the immediate aftermath of the, uh, of the Civil War. They happened because, in fact... Cash. Yeah, there was, ca- <laughs> there was money. And there was also just a... Ge- there, there was sort of a generation of Southerners who said, well... Okay, yeah, we kind of lost that war and we kind of had to give up slavery and stuff. What else do we have to give up? Maybe not so much, you know. Uh, we don't necessarily have to give up a lot of our Southern mythology about ourselves and, and we don't have to give up our notion that this was this valiant, doomed, tragic, nightly lost cause. You know, we can really set up an iconography that, you know, allows us to win part of the cultural war that's that's af- in the aftermath of and the Civil War. And it's tied to capital. I know we all laughed and chuckled when I said that, but that's the truth. It's, it is tied to capitalism. It is tied to giving a lot of money to Yale's endowment in order to name such a building, such a thing. Um, I, you know, I, I hate to bring it back to today, but a lot of the culture war that's being lost is the amount of cash the Murdochs were able to, you know, put into Fox News, which made fake news real news. Uh, capitalism is at the heart of this conversation and, and, and that kind of power. All right. I'm getting, I'm getting a thing from McNichols saying both, both pronunciations of flaccid are, ex- are acceptable. I, I, <laughs> Excellent. I grew up Excellent. with this radio host named Bob Steele who every day would have a word for the day and he would tell you this was how the word was pronounced. Because he was holding on <laughs> to it not being so. It could be. Flaccid. So uh, the last thing that I'll say about this, and then we have to kind of take a break and go on to another subject, is I, I do think that, yeah, cash and capital are very much wrapped up in this. Is, but so is the normal human impulse, the almost unavoidable human impulse for self-celebration 
generation. People ultimately want to believe yes. that what they are is good and what they've done is worth celebrating. And, and I'll give you an example that's very close to home. So the Hartford Current did a tremendous uh, journalism history project that led to a book called Complicity, which is sort of about the New England states and the complicity that they had in the slave trade, mm -hmm. which I thought was really terrific. But then when the current did its 250th anniversary a few years ago, which went on and on and on. I mean, it wound up being this exercise, and I write for The Current. I've written for The Current since 1975. Uh, but it wound up being this kind of corporate exercise in self-celebration. And I, I actually pushed them on one or two occasions, even right here in the studio on an episode of Where We Live. Like, there's so many things that you guys got wrong. Now, like, not you <laughs> sitting here, but like, why not do one day where you say, we screwed this up. We ran ads saying for runaway slaves. You know, we we had nativist nationalist editorials at a certain. Why not just own that? It would be s such a positive statement about journalism that you're willing to say, "Look, we have a glorious history, but boy, did we screw some stuff up." You know, and he and here they are, and we're not proud of this any more proud of this than the Red Sox should be proud of being the last to integrate. But I think. For every one of us, it's hard to go think, well, what's the worst thing we could say about ourselves? <laughs> we know so well how to say the best well, thing. Anyway, we got to take a break. We got to come back. We'll talk more. So uh, we're going to uh, change topics here uh, uh, quite a bit, I think, actually. Uh, but I hope this will be every bit as lively and interesting. Uh, Tanisha Dugan, produce, producing assistant at uh, associate at Theater Works. Uh, Irene Papoulis teaches writing at Trinity College. Tracy Wu Fastenberg, director of development of the Covenant Pre Preparatory School. We are going to move uh, to the world of uh, technology, uh, and so all of us read this very long, but I think pretty interesting story of, by kind of a trends researcher named Jean Twenge. I hope I'm saying her name right, uh, saying that she's been looking for decades and decades at how generations change and that she really believes that the, the, the generation that followed the millennials, the teens who came of today who came after millennials are really, really different and they're showing really sharp trend lines, most of them in a not very healthy direction, uh, trend lines going away from things like hanging out with friends, wanting to learn how to drive, dating, having sex. It could be argued getting teenagers to maybe wait a while to have sex isn't necessarily <laughs> horrible thing, feeling lonely, uh, getting enough sleep, all, all kinds of stuff. And she believes, she argues that it's the thing that they're carrying around in their pockets, holding in their hands. We all have them too. They're smartphones, but they're the first generation to, to be absolutely unaware of a world that doesn't have those things. So – um, yeah, we have like we have three moms here. That <laughs> <laughs> only, only two of whom really are going to have to really grapple with this. Cyrus mm. is like off to the races. Yeah. He's not part of this thing. So I don't know. Let's talk to you, moms. Here, I don't know, Tanisha. I mean, what did did, did, <laughs> did this case? I mean, did it make you at least wonder or worry 
uh, about the role smartphones will play in your kid's life? I yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I I have so many thinks about it because uh, there's the part I had a conversation with a, with a parent last week. Um, and he was saying how he and his wife are like so against screen time and they do really. And I turned to him and I was like, I wish because, you know, my my children live across two households and we've got different ideas of how we should uh, parent and screens are inevitable because we are guilty of it. And so mm-hmm. I think it's just a, a, a difficult thing uh, to do. I would love, and my intention is to push them outside of the house as much as I can um, to sort of have a little more of a freewheeling, present, physical life. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think I'd be foolish to think that they're not going to spend significant amounts of time in front of a screen. That article makes me concerned mm-hmm. <laughs> because I don't want them to live their lives inside. But I guess that's that's the goal is to get them out. Yeah. What did you make of it? Yeah, it, it definitely had me concerned. I will say that we're, we've been more in the camp of less screen time for mm-hmm. our daughter. Um, one of the reasons why she just had some some vision p- potential vision issues, so she really didn't watch anything on on a screen at home until she was about two years old. But now, it's inevitable. I mean, first of all, I don't want her to be isolated from her peers when they all know about I don't know Peppa Pig, whatever. Right. I still don't know who Peppa Pig is. But um, how old is she now? She's three and a half. You know, but I want her to have some awareness and and be able to fit in in that respect. But I want her to be able to entertain herself. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I know at her daycare, sometimes they'll put on a video or something, you know, music video. But they go outside, they play, they Mm -hmm. interact. And and I want her to continue that. Um, But at the same time, I need to make dinner sometimes. Mm -hmm. So we stick to a big screen. She does not know how to use the phone that I know of. She has not shown me she knows how to use it. Okay, so that's kind of like television. Yeah, um, it's more of like a, a movie. Like she's like three movies that she's allowed to watch like half an hour of. But Even um, baby yeah. boomers watch television so, as kids. Yeah, you know? so exactly. So, so I feel bad. like that's not too bad. But, but I, I don't want it to replace anything for her. Yeah. It might though. Oh. I taught in a uh, program this July for um, – for, teen, for high school kids, and it's very old school. It's a writing program, and the director said on the first night, you know, we're going to have, we had classes every day until about 2.30 or 3 o'clock, and um, so he said, we don't, we're not going to have any, you're not allowed to have any phones in the class, and he said, and also, leave your phone in the room. They were, it was a, they lived in the dorm, because uh, at the breaks, we're not going to let you look at your phone at all, mm-hmm. you know, and so it was very, interesting to see the kids, you know, then there was, I would say a split, you know, maybe 80% were really excited about that. And by the end, they were saying, oh my gosh, we actually, talk, you know, because he said, we want you to talk to each other at the breaks. We don't want mm-hmm. you to hide. But at one point on the second or third day, I went into the bathroom and I saw this girl with her, with her phone. And she gave me this look of, you know, she was humiliated because I saw her and it was almost like, you know, Don't it used to be me. catch somebody with, you know, <laughs> with a, with a joint or whatever. No, it was that she had her phone and she was just, it, she, you know, and it was sort of like she couldn't live without it. She had to, you know, check her Facebook or whatever she was checking, you know. And so that, it, it was just, it was interesting to see. And then, so of course we talked to the kids about that and about how they missed it. But they all, they said that backed up, you know, the thing that 
the neon sign in that article that stuck out for me was her just her all screen activities are linked to less happiness and all non-screen activities are, lin are linked to more happiness. And I saw that in the kids and they were saying, oh my gosh, you know, we actually made friends for life and we're actually having conversations. This is so interesting. I never have conversations, you know, real time conversations. A lot of them were saying so, you know, and that's a problem. Yeah. I, I sort of feel about this the same way that I felt feel about the first conversation we had today, which is that we all have to interrogate ourselves, mm -hmm. not just our kids. You know, I mean, the truth is we've been handed these incredibly powerful, pervasive devices. They're machines, but I mean, we often they're often the first thing we reach for when we get up in the morning. Um, the last I mean, thing we touch at night. Last <laughs> thing we touch at night. They're machines. They're information machines. They're communication devices. They have a kind of power. Nothing that came before them. I mean, in a way, I sort of think about McLuhan, and he always says, anytime there's this new leap technologically, there's an incredible amount of social anxiety that, that accompanies it. That the conversations that we have about things like this are very similar to like conversations that were had about the telegraph. You know, but I think these are still very special. They're so intimate. You hold them very close to you. You keep them on your person. You know, they're incredibly powerful devices. And I don't think we understand what they're doing to our lives. Mm -hmm. I, you said something about we're all guilty or something. I don't know whether you, whether you meant that or not, but I, oh, I, I feel do. like we are, we're all guilty. Oh, yeah. I, I, I absolutely embrace the fact that I'm guilty. I mean, it's, it's, it's the way that I can. I, I work 24-7 because of that thing. Mm -hmm. And it's like having to put that thing away actually gets me to stop working. Mm. And that's dangerous, that there is no space for me, for my kids, um, without that. And so the, the device that was that's meant to sort of bridge communication, in fact, is destroying communication on some level. And also, you know, what was interesting to me about that article is that it really uh, relates to empathy and your ability to do so because you're not actually looking at a human being and their reactions in real time, as you said, conversations in real time, you're looking at a perfectly curated conversation via text, right? Um, so we're not even using them as phones, phones to hear voices, but to, to talk um, in writing. And so it, it's, it's dangerous and I recognize it in me. Um, it's a difficult drug to quit. Um, <laughs> but I realize if I'm going to teach my child or my children to do, to do better, I have to be better. Oh, yeah, absolutely. I, I found that I have to take my phone and put it elsewhere. If it's just me and my daughter, my husband's away or whatever, I need to put it somewhere else because it lights up, the temptation's too great, and I'm not focusing on her or, you know, leave it in my purse if I'm having a meal with a friend or we don't have phones at our dinner table. I have to instill rules for myself to make sure that I'm not right. doing that. And my poor husband has definitely told me many times, most recently two nights ago, stop being on your phone. You know, but my work email's on there, mm -hmm. personal email, other things, you know, and it's just, it can be all-consuming and there's a person right in front of you. I think that one of the things that you're going to discover as your kids get older, there's going to be a point when they're 11, 12, 13, 14, I don't know, this will all speed up probably in the years ahead, where you ultimately give them their first smartphone or iPhone or whatever. And one of the things that you're going to find is that you've developed all these coping mechanisms. You you may be almost as addicted and every bit as sick from your phone <laughs> as the kid is about to become, but you know how to conceal it, you know, whereas the kid will, you'll introduce this kid to a, another adult and the kid won't look at the adult. The kid will be so entranced by this new iPhone and that'll go on for like about a year until they learn how to conceal. It's, it's, it's like, you know, Starman, if Jeff Bridges just showed up and started shooting heroin 
because it just felt so good. And he didn't understand that other people were like, no, you don't actually shoot the heroin right in front of people in diners and stuff. You go off and you, but that's you do why, it someplace else. Well, right. But that's why the other thing in that article that struck me was the idea that a lot of kids just would rather stay in their room than be with other people or be with their friends because their phone is more interesting, you know. Mm-hmm. And so that leads to <laughs> depression. And that leads to them not wanting, you know, she said they didn't want to get their car, their their driver's license or anything because they'd rather just stay home and, and look at the phone, which yeah. is. I took umbrage with the with the driving piece because I don't actually think there's a correlation between the phone and the driving. I actually think that's a parenting thing in the driving. <laughs> you know, it's more of like, I will take care of you. I will take yeah. you where you need. I am at your beck and call. You know, I think think there's some of that. But I also just I know from I mean, millennials were the first generation who really didn't eventually become interested interested in having that. I mean, they were much less likely to pursue a driver's license at the earliest possible opportunity. A driver's license represents what baby baby boomers love, which is independence and going out in the world Mm -hmm. and, and seeing what's going on and having adventures, you know. And so her whole point in the article was that. There's a there's a pull away from that. All the adventure is in the phone. Yeah, they're, it's having not in the world. they're having their yeah, they're having their adventure. Yeah, they're having adventure. I mean, I, I would love to make it the phone's fault, but I also think they were not <laughs> given <laughs> opportunities to mm-hmm. find adventure. Mm-hmm. Well, that's that we true. lived. We, I mean, how many times do we have conversations about helicopter parenting? This yeah. is the manifestation mm-hmm. of helicopter that's, parenting. No, very true. So we have to pivot really quickly here, and we won't have. We'll only have a couple of minutes to talk about this. But I mean, I've been very intrigued by the plight of Best Video. Best Video in Hamden is like everybody's favorite video store if you live anywhere near it, and even if not, you, you don't, you probably heard of it. They have thirty thousand titles there. Just to kind of give you a scale of reference, Netflix, I think, stores about 5,000 titles. So, so Netflix is a big, huge corporation. They've got 30,000 titles there. But they can't stay in business because of streaming or they're struggling to stay in business because of streaming. They've diversified. They have guitar guitar (laughs) concerts and coffee houses and they now do music too and all this stuff. But still – uh, they're struggling. And I'm kind of wondering about that. You know, I mean, one argument is, well, they just, you know, they're not going to make it. Things like this are not going to make it. Um, and so just let them go. I don't know. I'm having a hard time with that. So help me out, panel. I'm with you. I, I am. I'm going to be woefully unsourcing this person. But there's this <laughs> idea of third place. Yes. And uh, I think that is sort of the missing piece of all of these conversations is the place where community comes together to meet, to talk, to understand. Um, and we've made it less important. Um, and the third place isn't your phone, isn't Facebook. <laughs> like, like those things can't replace that. People try. People try. for that. Yeah. yeah. Uh, and I think that's that's probably at the heart of um, the video store. It's sort of figuring out what third place means um, to that community. And it can't be everything to all people. But it's also giving up this idea that is placed on by the people who own the store and giving it back to the people who come to the store. It's a little more of a, you know, it's been sort of my buzzword and I want to thank my fellows for this. But it's it's about human-centered design, you know. I don't know if people are interested in coffee house, um, you know, singer-songwriting opportunities anymore. I don't know if that's interesting or appealing. I don't, I don't know if what's more interesting and appealing in this moment is the ability to talk to each other about the crazy-ish that's happening, you know, well, I, around. I, I, I also know. think, I said this in the emails, but I mean, 
Tracy, I guarantee you that there are nights where you sit down and what, whatever you've got, Netflix, Amazon, Prime, you look at it and you go, there's nothing to watch. There's nothing I want to watch right now. That's just about every night. <laughs> yeah. you know, unless we go in and say, right. this is what we're going to watch because we heard about it from somebody who told us it was good. Whatever Netflix is telling us or whatever Amazon Prime is telling us, it's never what we want. We scroll through and we'll spend more time scrolling through and then wind up going, that's time to go to bed. <laughs> yeah. And that's the issue of curation, right? That ultimately, I don't know, I used to go to a video store a little bit like Bester and there were these two really funny guys there. And, you know, you'd rent a James Cameron movie and they'd go, you know, all those movies are about Vietnam. And then they explain why. And I think, this is terrific. Oh, <laughs> so, I will never have that conversation. Exactly. Yeah. It's, it's that. It's the, it had nothing to do with the movie, ultimately. It had to do with the connection you had with those humans. Mm-hmm. Did we mm-hmm. all have memories of those guys? And they were always the kind of guys that, would, that never go out because they're just watching movies all day. And they can tell you everything. <laughs> Thing about every movie, and they get to know your taste, and so they they know what you would like in a way that Netflix doesn't. Right. Yeah. We're gonna have to pause there. Uh, we're gonna come back. We're gonna make some recommendations. I'm so tired of performing in the pageantry of vanity and conforming to this accepted form of digital insanity. Call me crazy, but I imagine a world where we smile when we have low batteries. Because that'll mean we'll be one bar closer to humanity. Today's show is produced by Jonathan McPants with help from Betsy Kaplan and me, Kion Wolf. The part of Bill Curry was played by Robert Pattinson. On Monday, we'll be back with the inevitably infuriating news from over the weekend on The Scramble. And now, back to Colin. We'll also be doing our show in the middle of the eclipse, uh, where we're going to get about a 70%. Somebody was telling me last night. They were saying that we should do our show outside, um, which is maybe a good idea. At least 15 minutes. That's right. So let's do some uh, recommendations. Uh, I'll start over here. Tracy Wu Fastenberg, what have you got for us? Got two things. Uh, I was wandering by William Sonoma the other day, which I never do, and they had this poster of all these little uh, artistic spatulas that were designed by various celebrities, and they're twelve ninety five each. But uh, all the proceeds go to feeding children hmm. and providing meals, and they're actually really cute. So I got two of them. One has a sloth, and one was uh, for a friend. So um, they're well, worth no, we checking need to know out. What celebrities? Yeah. Oh, um, the one that I got was Kristen Bell, um, Neil Patrick oh, Harris did one. Oh, that's the sloth one. one. That's the sloth one, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Neil Patrick Harris did one. Um, there's a bunch of them, so it, a couple of different chefs and things. So, um, But they were just really cute and for a good cause. I think it's sad that I know which spatula uh, Kristen I was Bell did. Yeah. <laughs> I wasn't going to call you out on it, but now that you called yourself celebrity. out. <laughs> that's not a good sign. All right, Tanisha, what have you got for us? Um, I'm going to uh, endorse National Art Strategies, who um, sent me away last week for a week to um, think creatively about community. So thanks to them and to all of my fellows who are incredible and change makers and doing wonderful things. And then this is not self-serving. It's kind of radical. But I'm also going to endorse myself because I find that there is a tendency for people to diminish my presence as a black female creative leader um, to push forward a narrative that says that we don't exist in those spaces. And so I'm endorsing myself saying, I am there. I am here. I am at the table. I make decisions. Um, I make change. Um, don't forget it, even though I may be quiet I'm in my I'm going to second power. that endorsement then. There you go, <laughs> yeah. yeah. 
All right. What have you got for us? I'm endorsing Tanisha. (laughs) (laughs) And um, and also just for uh, going out to the movies. And there's a Lena Wertmuller film festival going on at Cine Studio. And I saw this movie last week called The Seduction of Mimi. And it's got the uh, by Lena Wertmuller. And it's it's a fantastic movie and the woman Marianne Angela Mulatto is in it and she's just such a wonderful actress and she's really young in that role and it's very it's a, it's just an interesting movie about Marxism and uh, people and humanity and love and all these things so it's called The Seduction of Mimi on Sunday at Cine Studio um, they are, they're, and they're having other movies by her this whole week and for a few more days. Um, and also I want to endorse an article in the, in the recent New Yorker, the August 21st New Yorker, about Julian Assange. It's called The Man Without a Country, and it's an incredible article. It's really, really long, but if you're at all interested in Julian Assange, he's the same guy that wrote the profile of him back in 2010, and he talks about, I feel like I understand so many levels of Julian Assange that I didn't before, so if you're interested, read that. All right. Um, well, I would like to endorse uh, Tanisha Dugan as well. Um, I think it's going to become a trend now. Um, I, you know, I have a less specific endorsement than I usually do this week. Uh, and, and but here's what it is. So tomorrow, I'm giving a graduation speech to the graduate program down a commencement speech to the graduate program down at Sacred Heart University. And so I'm in the middle of writing this speech. And when you do that, of course, you have to um, think about what you believe. Uh, so you're gonna, so you can tell them all this stuff. And I'm trying not to be you know, sort of sententious and predictable and all that kind of stuff, although I probably will wind up being both of those things. So, so there's, there's one flippant thing that I, I will mention right now that I'm going to say at the beginning, which is I'm actually going to have this water bottle with me. It's by Clean Canteen. Uh, and um, the reason it's a great water bottle is because I'm personally fond of it, which means that I'll remember to bring it with me and I'll actually use it and stuff like that. And I really do believe that the best things often are the things that you will use. The best gym is not the cheapest one or the most expensive one. It's the one that you'll go to. The best water bottle is the one that you like enough for whatever weird reason that you'll bring it with you. You'll remember to bring it with you. Those are the best things. got nothing to do with price or anything like that. It has to do with what your relationship is to them. That's my little practical piece of advice. But my one of the, the themes of my actual speech is, and I'll just make it an endorsement today, is it, it's a phrase I actually stole from Chris Hardwick, which I was not a very exalted source, make a thing. Uh, that's what he always says, make a thing. You know, we can all make things. You know, like everybody can make a thing. You know, I mean, maybe you can make a pie. Maybe you can make a podcast. You know, maybe you can, you, know, you can make a bouquet, whatever it is. And, you know, apropos of our conversations about phones and stuff like that, to me, that's one of the hazards of phones is that you start just looking at stuff that other people made and not making your things. You know, and I think part of mental health is recognizing that we can all make things. Whatever the thing is that you can make, make it. You'll feel so much better than just consuming stuff that other people make. So um, so think about that this weekend. Think about what you're going to make. I mean, really, if it's a blueberry pie, that's great. You know, it doesn't have to be a sonnet, although it could be. All right. Thanks to these uh, wonderful panelists. I endorse actually all of the panelists, Tanisha, uh, Irene, and Tracy. Thanks for being with us. We'll be back on Monday. Talk about Torrington. Vernon, Danbury, Waterbury, Oliveberry, Woodbury, hitting on New Britain, Vernon, I already said that one, Avon, Farmington, yeah, 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 yeah